and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quit me. I remember, you know, there is no quit me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. My name is Brian Levinson. When I'm not recording this podcast, I work as a mental performance coach. So I get to work with all kinds of teams, pro teams, uh, pro athletes, college teams, college athletes, high school teams, high school athletes. And then I also work in the business world and corporate. Uh, So I help those people develop their mindset for performance. So we often focus on how each person can set their mind to create opportunities to win moments, to maximize potential, and to ultimately enjoy success. So we'll talk about their mindset for preparation and their mindset for performance. And I love what I do for a living. Every day is different. Each person is different. Uh, And I started this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are people intentionally setting their mind to be their best. So we aim to unpack just that and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you about how you can help support the podcast. First, you're already doing it just by listening. So thank you for being here with us. But you also can go over to our Patreon homepage. And Patreon is a really cool website, which allows creators like me to find a way to create revenue stream without the typical model of advertising. So go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can support the show with a $10 a month donation. Uh, And with that comes all kinds of perks. And if you go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers, you'll see what some of those perks are. So thank you to everyone who's already supported the show. And hopefully we can get some more supporters uh, at this time as well. Now I'd love to transition over to our podcast guest today. So George Solomon is somebody, if you grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, you've probably heard of because he was at the forefront and really was behind the scenes with the Washington Post sports section. So people like Thomas Boswell, Michael Wilbon, Tony Kornheiser, Mike Wise, the list goes on and on. Christine Brennan uh, of amazing sports columnists that came from the Washington Post. And George Solomon was the assistant managing editor for Sports at the Post from 1975 to 2003. So he got to work with legends in the sports journalism world. And he really served as their coach, as their editor, as somebody who would push them and challenge them and cause them to do things differently and just try to help them perfect their craft. Um, so he, he has been in the weeds with some of the best performers when it comes to journalism in the world. And he's going to give a really interesting perspective on what it's like to be an editor and what it takes to be a, a great editor. So he's going to share his story uh, and what led to him getting to the Washington Post and also some of his interactions with people like Shirley Povich, Kornheiser, Wilbon. As I said, the list goes on and on. So George is somebody who has been inducted into the Washington Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, he's gotten all kinds of journalism awards and has just really been one of the preeminent editors when it comes to sports journalism, really in the country. Uh, He also now works at the University of Maryland, Philip Merrill College School of Journalism. And he uh, over there is uh, the directorship of the Shirley Povich Center for Sports Journalism. And he'll talk about that experience and how it's what it's been like to be uh, a teacher and a professor at the University of Maryland and how working with today's journalists are a little different than previous journalists. So George is a wealth of knowledge. You will find throughout this conversation that he has a pretty amazing memory considering all of the stories and all the dates that he goes back to. And he's quite vivid in his storytelling. So I love this conversation with George. I know you will too. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, George Solomon. 
George. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Excited to chat with you. We've chatted over lunch uh, and chatted next to each other. We're not really chatted, but been next to each other uh, at physical therapy. Um, so cross paths a little bit, but I am really curious to start with your journey in journalism. So can you start with just how did you get started in the world of journalism? What was that start like? And just paint that picture for us a little bit. Uh, Brian, uh, it really started when I was a kid um, because uh, my father uh, was in the restaurant business and we lived in uh, New York and then Miami. And uh, I started because uh, he would bring four, five, and sometimes six newspapers uh, into the home uh, when I was a kid and I started looking at them. And then when I was in, uh, you know, grade school, uh, we had a grade school paper and I started fiddling with that. And then when I got into high school, uh, I really liked it and started writing for the local paper called the Miami Beach Sun, which like many newspapers of local, uh, pedigree, uh, no longer exists. And, uh, but I started doing it and started covering some games and writing some stories and I liked it and did it in high school and then went to the University of Florida where I had the good fortune of being a str campus stringer for a number of newspapers in the state. Uh, like beside Miami, it was Jacksonville and Tampa and St. Petersburg. And, uh, um, I really enjoyed that at that time. There were no professional sports in the state of Florida. And so the University of Florida, Florida State and Miami were the big deals. And I covered a lot of campus, uh, uh, events at the University of Florida. Plus, uh, you know, worked in the sports information office, uh, worked for the campus newspaper and really loved it. And uh, when I got out of college, I uh, first went to work for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. That was a bad fit. And uh, why was it a bad fit? Uh, I was in charge of statistics, and I'm not very good at math. Okay. Which, uh, if you look at the 1963, 64 NCAA stats, discount them because uh, <laughs> I'm not very good at math. But I was the head statistician, and, and that's before computers. And I uh, did that for a couple of years, worked at the New York Post as what they then call a copy boy. Now we refer to those kinds of folks, which I was, as news aides. And, uh, but I was a copy boy at the New York Post, wasn't very good at that, but I was okay. And uh, went to work covering high school sports in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and loved that. And then I got a break or two and wound up being the sports editor in Fort Lauderdale. But I always wanted to work at the Washington Post or the New York Times. Can we go back? Um, what were the newspapers that your dad would bring home? Do you remember which ones they were? I did. And even though we lived in Miami, he would bring home the New York Times and the New York Herald Tribune. Uh, the Herald Tribune no longer in existence, plus the Miami Herald. And he would, I would get the, he would bring home the Sporting News, which at that time was a weekly. And uh, I devour that. And uh, occasionally I would even see the daily racing form uh, in town, although my mother uh, didn't particularly like me reading the daily racing form. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I didn't follow that path. But uh, it was just newspapers were something part of my life for as long as I can remember and still part of my life. And when I speak at the Oasis Adult Education, I'll ask the uh, uh, attendees, how many of you actually hold a newspaper? And of a group of 90, 90 raise their hands. Wow. But I teach journalism here at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism and a class of 20, I'll ask the same question. And no one raises their hands. Pretty they wild. all read it online and they read it on their phones. What did mom and dad do? Uh, my father was in the restaurant business and my mother uh, owned a knitting store and was a knitting instructor. Very cool. And sports? Why was sports important to you? It sounds like you were reading. I love sports and I was okay in baseball, although I uh, was the last cut from the all-star team from the Miami Beach High School, uh, Little League, from the Miami Beach Little League team. And the coach who did cut me was uh, a friend of mine, later grew up a really, really close friend named Skip Bertman is the most renowned college baseball coach in the history of college baseball. And he made his mark at LSU. Wow. And cutting me was probably the first of many, many, many wise moves that he made. <laughs> and uh, 
Did dad was dad into sports? What dad, was... he was really into sports, and they, uh, he, the, the, you know, when he started his career, uh, he had, they had a restaurant. The family had a restaurant uh, in the New York newspaper district. It was called Park Row, and the name of the restaurant was Solomon's. And uh, he developed a lot of friendships with newspaper people, and from that, uh, there was a sense of being a newspaper person was a good thing. And sports? Was he a Yankee fan? What was what was? He used to. I remember just distinctly, uh, being five and six years old, uh, being at Yankee Stadium and seeing Joe DiMaggio play. And I also quite vividly remember uh, when Babe Ruth made his final appearance at Yankee Stadium. You know, uh, beleaguered with cancer, uh, in a in an overcoat, saying goodbye. And I was in the third deck, and I do remember that. Can you take us there? Can you paint that picture? What was it like for you sitting uh, in the stands and, and watching that? It was a cold, gray afternoon, and uh, it was uh, it was uh, uh, Babe Ruth saying goodbye, and I was with my dad, and at the same time, uh, Shirley Povich was covering for the Washington Post, and at that moment, uh, between my father and Shirley Povich were the two of the most important uh, men in my life. Uh, sitting in the same stadium in 1947. Right, but you didn't know it at the time. But Of course not. Down the road it was. I, of course not, but it turned out that way. Pretty cool. So a se uh, seminal moment for you and, and a memory that's very distinct and you use the word vivid. Um, well, I, I would say uh, I played uh, in the ninth grade uh, for the Miami Beach JV high school football team. And uh, I was first string for one day as a guard. And uh, and I was also writing for the high school paper. And I remember the coach taking me aside and said, look, I've seen you play and I've seen you write. I think your future is a writer. And that was very vivid. And from that point on, I became a, uh, a sports journalist. What was it that drew you to writing? Uh, I loved to read good things. Uh, a, fr a friend of mine, for instance, uh, uh, Bill Knack, uh, uh, wrote for years and years and years for Sports Illustrated. And Frank DeFord, who is was a friend of mine who recently passed away, and Dan Jenkins. I recently wrote a piece for the Povich website on Sports Illustrated's now for sale. It's now a, a bi-monthly uh, uh, magazine instead of a weekly and I used to relish, you know, reading a Frank DeFord uh, a feature, or reading a Bill Knack feature, reading Dan Jenkins. And those are beautifully written stories. Uh, uh, I wrote uh, wrote about Tony Kornheiser, wrote a piece on Rick Barry. When he was at the Post, working at the Post as a sports writer, uh, sports columnist, and also a, sport, a columnist for the style section, wrote a piece on Rick Barry for Sports Illustrated that was memorable. And Sports Illustrated still has memorable memorable pieces. But uh, there's a guy named John Shulian who worked for the Washington Post uh, under myself. And uh, he was a great writer and still a great writer. I just love reading good stories. That, that's what I really love reading. Uh, David Shinen, this uh, you know particular week, had a story in the Washington Post on Dusty Baker. And you'd want to read and, and savor every sentence. And, you know, I try to, you know, empower my students to do that, to, you know, love what you read and, and pick good things and read it. And Bill Knack used to say that's the key that what made him a great writer is he read good things. So 15 or 16-year-old George is getting feedback from coaches that eh, maybe football's not the way, maybe baseball is not the way, uh, writing might be the way. What was the dream for you then? Uh, the dream for me then was to either, you know, and, and th this sort of grew when I went to college at the University of Florida, which was a great J school. Uh, I had two professors, uh, a guy named Hugh Cunningham, who's still alive, he's about 100, and uh, a guy named Buddy Davis, who, while a journalism professor at the uh, University of Florida, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. And they were great uh, They were great teachers, which I try to be here at the Merrill College. And, uh, you know, they, 
inspired me and they worked with me and they saw, you know, my strengths and they saw my weaknesses. And, uh, and, you know, and I think, you know, you try to do that and you try to, you know, appreciate someone's strengths and try to help them grow past their weaknesses. And uh, that's hard to do. Uh, but these two journalism professors had a great impact in my life. And, uh, you know, they meant a lot. There are going to be people that listen to this that might be freshman, sophomore, junior at a college, and certainly you're around those type of kids all the time. What were your strengths and what were your weaknesses at that age? Uh, my strengths is because I read so many uh, newspapers, I had a feel for what to do. And I had a feel for what made a story. I couldn't write very well at that time. And I, you know, some would say, you know, some of my good friends and some of my former colleagues uh, would say, you still never became a good writer. You know, you, you know, you were a hack and, uh, but I wasn't. And I did uh, grow into being a good editor. And I, you know, I knew a good story and I knew when that where a story had holes, but I did know how to hire people. And I was very, very fortunate that most of the people that I hired made me look good because they were so good. What, what, uh, skills does one need to be able to hire people well? Um, you got to be able to read and you got to, you know, one of the things I notice now as a professor here at the University of Maryland and when the students apply for jobs is that, uh, that you know, they don't hear back from the people they apply to. Uh, there's no, you know, thank you for your interest. I read your stories. You need to improve this, this, and this. And, you know, I hope to hear from you again. And you don't get that anymore. And I try to, you know, I try to do that. And I try to read the things that, you know, came across my desk. And sometimes I did it well and sometimes not so well. What stands out in my mind more than anything else is that Mitch Albom, who later, you know, was one of the great best-selling authors of all time and a great sports columnist for the Detroit Free Press. Uh, he came to see me and showed me his stuff. And I said, Mitch, I think you need to work on your writing. Well, he, he, he became, you know, without a doubt, one of the great writers in this country, you know, sports or otherwise with some, you know, you know, Tuesdays with Maury and so many other great books and uh, you, you you read the read the material that comes across your desk and read it uh, there's a great story that um, a former LSU football player named John Ed Bradley uh, wrote a four-page letter to Ben Bradley uh, the late Ben Bradley and, and Bradley said hey this is good and he gave it to the managing editor the late Howard Simons I keep saying the late the late the late well fortunately it's not the late George Solomon yet and uh, and and Simons came into my office and he said, this guy looks interesting. Read it. And I did. It was a four-page letter. And he had been the co-captain of the LSU Tigers. This was in the mid-70s. He was a center. And he wrote a four-page letter to Ben Bradley on why he wanted to become a writer. And it was a brilliant letter. And I was an SEC guy being from Florida. And I said, oh, this guy's really good. So I contacted him and I said, you know, can you do a piece for us? Uh, the Washington Post. And he did about his experiences at LSU. And it knocked my socks off. And then I, we had him do another one. And then we had him cover a game, which he could not do. He couldn't cover a game because he was too emotionally involved seeing LSU, his team, play against Alabama. Uh, calls up Len Shapiro, my deputy, and says, I can't do this. You know, don't send me a check. Well, we did pay him and he didn't cash the check. And, but he became a great writer. We hired him at the post as an intern, quickly made him full-time, and he stayed with us maybe five, six years, uh, wrote for the Ma Post magazine, then the style section, and he left the Post, and he became a freelance writer, pretty much almost on staff for Sports Illustrated, GQ, Esquire, a great writer, and he still writes books. Uh, he wrote a book about his experiences at LSU called It Never Rains in Tiger Stadium, which I still, you know, make my students read, which they don't, and, uh, you know, it's just, you have to read, you have to appreciate good work, you have to appreciate the likes of Tim Kirkjian, who um, 
you know, and I made the absolute ridiculous mistake in the late 1970s when the Washington Star went out of business of not hiring him. He goes to work in Dallas. He goes to the Washington Star as the number two a beat writer behind Dan Shaughnessy at the Washington Star. So Shaughnessy and Kirkuchen, uh were on the Washington Star, and me like an well, I had Tom Boswell covering baseball for the Washington Post. It was pretty good, but still, you could find a place for Dan Shaughnessy and Tim Kirkuchen, and I never did. <clears throat> and both of them became exceptional. Uh, Kirkuchen now with uh, MLB.com and MLB Network is literally you know one of the three top baseball authorities in the country. Shaughnessy is a brilliant sports columnist for the Boston Globe. So, but you, you know, you read and you follow, you follow people along and see how they do. It's a little tougher now with all the websites, you know, in the day, uh, in my office, I would have not only, of course, the whole Washington Post, which I've always read in the mornings, uh, but you had the Washington Star later, the Washington Times. Uh, you had the Baltimore Sun, which was very competitive with the Post in, you know, in so many areas. Uh, then you, you, you read USA Today when they came on the scene. You read the New York Times, but you also had delivered not you didn't read it online. You had delivered the uh, the this the whole newspaper, the Washington Post, would get delivered the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Times on a daily basis, and you would look at these newspapers as competition and with respect. They had great staffs, and that's how you learn. You learn by reading not only your own people and your own newspaper, but other people and other papers. From a hiring standpoint, you're also scouting, essentially, right? You're, you're scouting talent. You're looking for talent. So you're reading to sharpen the axe and to get better, but you're also reading to scout. Is, is scouting the right way you think about it, or do you think about it differently? Uh, scouting and recruiting. And it's funny. Uh, uh, I used to write uh, a Sean, Dan Shaughnessy after he left uh, Washington and went to Boston. I used to write him occasionally uh, to see if he might be interested in coming to the Post. And Shaughnessy said, keep doing it, because every time his boss, Vince Story, would see a letter from the from me at the Washington Post, he'd give Shaughnessy a raise. And Shaughnessy said, every time I wrote him, I got him, I got him a raise. So, but, you know, you did that, and you d developed relationships with people. Uh, I, I remember to this day, I got a call from a University of Miami professor. I was at the Washington Post. He didn't know me. He said, I, I'm the journalism guy at the University of Miami. There's a guy down here who's a senior you should look at. His name is Dan Lebetard. Mm. And, uh, and I said, fine, I'll look at him. And I didn't. And, you know, that's the last thing I needed is to, you know, check out a guy at the University of Miami, which was not, you know, did not have a reputation of a great J school. Uh, as it turned out, Lebetard proved me completely wrong. He became not only a terrific sports columnist, he has a top-rated radio show on ESPN and a top-rated television show, which he does with his father. And, uh, you know, so it's amazing to see how things, if you just, you know, listen and, and read and keep your eyes open and don't think no matter what you do, you're the best, good things can happen. So the value of humility, the value of constantly staying with your craft, not thinking you're bigger than something or someone. And there's always, you can always sort of sift for, for gold. And, and as long as you're sifting, you might, you might find something or uncover You might find nowadays, you know, it's easier to read other papers, you know, cause they're all online and you can read it. You know, some might cost you a few bucks, but for the most part, you could read it. Like there's a new website called The Athletic, which I like to, you know, which I subscribe to for 45 bucks. But, uh, you know, you know, read what other people are doing and respect other people. Uh, the, my late boss, Ben Bradley, um, he read everything. 
I mean, uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, Bradley had read not only his own paper, the Washington Post, and he was a pretty good editor. And uh, he had also read the New York, New York Times. He read the Wall Street Journal. He, he, he sort of belittled USA Today, but read it. And, uh, and he knew what was going on in the sun. And if something appeared in another newspaper that he felt the Washington Post sports should have had, he would have tear it out and in red pen, question mark, he'd write a question mark in red pen and say, what's this? Hmm. With a question. What's this? You know, which means we got beat on a story. And, you know, that's how you do it. That's how it was. And I think, still think in a lot of ways it's that way. However, I'll say this. Um, except for the Washington Post and the New York Times, most, most newspapers have a struggle on their hands. And that's a little depressing in that you're not so much worried about the product of your paper. You're worried about the survival of your newspaper. And, and the websites, the websites, uh, uh, you know, sports of the world. I think I've got the name right. That was putting out some terrific stuff. And then the next day they, they were gone. What do you think that does for somebody in that position when they're focused on surviving rather than thriving? Uh, it's not good. You play defense. And uh, you, you can't play defense and be a good editor. You can't play defense. And, you know, as a reporter, the last thing you wanted to do was pick up, uh, if you were working at the Washington Post covering the Orioles, the last thing you wanted to do was pick up the Baltimore Sun and see a big story and uh, that you didn't have. And, you know, so that's not so bad. But you can't, you know, you got to be aggressive and you got to look for good stories and not worry, worry about whether or not they're going to ask you to cut 10 people from your staff the next month. And you talked about Bradley by 10 a.m. Had, had read all these papers and done all the reading and he still was then able to be a great editor. What was your process like before 10 a.m.? Uh, well, before 10 a.m., I did uh, breakfast uh, with my children and my what wife. What time would that be at? Um, I, 8 o'clock or 7.30, whenever I can rouse them. And my wife did evenings because I would get home after dinner. And uh, hopefully they would leave me some food, but that didn't happen all that often. And, uh, but, you know, I would, you know, by the time... Most department heads at the Washington Post in the day when they came to work on their desks were the L.A. Times, the Boston Globe, uh, New York Times, USA Today, and, you know, as well, of course, the Washington Post and the Washington Star and later the Washington Times. So in the Baltimore Sun. You knew what the other people were doing and you knew who their, their writers were. So if I walked into that office, everybody's just reading the papers, going through those in the morning. That's sort of the process. Absolutely not. Okay, so it tell was me. me. It was you. <laughs> it was me. I mean, it's just uh, you know, the last thing Sally Jenkins did before eleven a.m. was read the Boston Globe. You know, some people started late, but she, you know, that was the editor's job is to read what the other papers were doing. Uh, the reporters knew what their opposition was up to. Believe me, they knew. But uh, it was, you know, the editor was responsible for what was in the other paper. So I'd love to unpack a little more. We've talked about what it looks like to hire or to miss hiring talent, uh, but talk about an editor. So one of the lines that I've heard, and I don't know how true this adage is, but it always st uh, stuck with me was to write drunk and edit sober. Um, and I don't know if you've heard that term before, uh, but I, it always struck me as an interesting way of thinking about things. What do you think about that line? And then also unpack a little bit what a great editor's role and job is. Well, uh, first thing, the, the editor's role is to put out a good newspaper or, you know, nowadays a good website. And you do that by getting the right people and having them do the good work. And you, you, you do it. And, uh, and you know what the stories are. You try to know what people want to read. And Howard Simons, who was Ben Bradley's uh, number one deputy for many years, used to say that the Washington Post was like a supermarket. A little of this, a little of that, a little of every something for everyone. 
and that's a good way to be. As far as an editor is concerned, you play defense, that you, you, you knew what the good stories were, but you knew what the other paper was doing. You knew the strengths of the other paper, and you knew the strengths of your paper, and you knew what the weaknesses were. I mean, you, you know, you had some weak links, but you tried to shore up those weak links, and you tried to do what you could. But that's fascinating. So a great writer or reporter, or I don't know if you even put um, columnist in the same bucket, but they have to be aggressive and play offense, but a great editor has to play defense. Am I getting that correctly? Uh, what? It, yeah. I mean, when you, when you would edit a story, and they, this is today, I'm sure, uh, you edit a story, you, you look for one, making sure it's accurate and making sure it's fair. And whether it's a news story or a column, make sure it's fair. Not all the people do that nowadays. And, you know, particularly we're just, you know, you know, reading this nonsense about fake news. You know, there's fake news when someone wants to make up stuff. You know, that's fake news. You get the facts. Give the reader the, a shot at the facts first before you give them an opinion. And uh, and I think that's really important. And walk me through the difference between a reporter and a columnist, because I think, especially in today's world, those are getting more and more blurry. Uh, but but with the newspaper, how did you think about columnist versus reporter, if you separated it at all? No, you separated completely. A reporter is to get the facts, put them in right, get a good story, break a news story, break something that nobody else has. As a columnist, you can make and write about an educated opinion. But in that opinion, you've got to have your facts straight, and there's a little fairness involved as well. And sometimes uh, the editors need to push that. And uh, But get your facts straight. And I, I think that's really important. So from a columnist standpoint, you had some of the greats of all time growing up outside Washington, D.C. area and reading the newspaper, you know, being my age, we grew up with Boswell, Kornheiser, Wilbon, Wise. I mean, the list goes on and on. Jenkins, Christine Brown. I mean, it's like a hall of fame of columnists. Um, what was it like working with that roster of what I'll call sort of columnist superstars? Well, one, um, you know, you also have to mention, let's see, Ken Denlinger was there. And then uh, I grew up, you know, even though I lived in Miami, reading Shirley Povich because he was syndicated by the Washington Post Wire Service. So uh, Povich was great. I mean, he wasn't good. He was great. And he was a master of the English language. So uh, you're growing up in Florida reading Shirley Povich. Right. He, was, he would appear in the Miami Herald. And then so would Red Smith. But I would also get the New York Herald Tribune, thanks to my father, uh, in which Red Smith was a daily columnist five days a week in the New York Herald Tribune. And they were great columnists. And when I got to the Washington Post, Povich was about to retire, or did retire, and in 1973 or four, and but then when I became the sports editor in 1975, uh, a year or two after, uh, I asked him to write a couple of columns. Usually, when somebody died, like Tony Zale, a boxer, you probably don't remember, but Shirley Povich was the only man alive who covered Tony Zale. I would say, Shirley, can you do a Tony Zale column? And Shirley said, I will, but I don't like to be the obituary writer. And But he still would do it. But then we would get him to do uh, a piece uh, like, um, you know, Shirley, how about writing a column comparing uh, Mickey Mantle with Mark McGuire? And, uh, or let's, can you write a column on Walter Johnson or write a column on what Washington is missing? The fact that we have no baseball team. And he was a great columnist, but then Kornheiser and Wilbon. Before and, you get to those guys, I'm just curious. Don't let me forget David Kindred. All right. We'll come back to all of them, but you're talking about the guy that you're reading and sort of looking up to in writing the michael jordan right uh, however you want to define it and now you're working with him and crafting these concepts with him take me to that space what what is that like for you you're now at the washington post you're <laughs> he's writing stories you're 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 working with him what what was that like for you well to edit shirley povich was an honor 
and he could still write better than anybody else on staff. You know, he was older, but he could still write better, and he knew more. However, he could never spell correctly Muhammad Ali. <laughs> so, you know, he, he wasn't perfect, and neither was I. But a, to, another key to being a good editor is you try to help whatever you're editing. And know full well that all the columnists that I did edit over the, you know, 28 years that I was the sports editor wrote better than me. When, when did you realize that you'd be better off as an editor rather than a writer? Uh, in 1974, Don Graham had just became the sports editor and asked if I would be his deputy and try it for a year. And I did, and I liked it, and uh, I stayed with it. And, and what did editing give you that you didn't necessarily have in writing? Uh, it gave me the satisfaction of trying to put out a daily product uh, of quality every single day and trying to help people on staff get better and trying to help young journalists improve. And I really enjoyed that and still do. So it's sort of like coaching, teaching rather than maybe playing. Would that be a good analogy? Right. But also knowing I couldn't play as well as the people I was editing. Got it. And it's, it's fascinating. And then what is it like? How do you have the confidence to edit Povich um, when you're in that place, uh, in that space? Where did that confidence come from for you? Well, in editing Povich, Povich was a brilliant wordsmith. Is that, you know, you didn't mess with his paragraphs. You didn't mess with his words. You watched him, you know, for an occasional spelling error. Or he, he was just such a marvelous craftsman. Is that very rarely would you ever want to mess with his stuff. You know, and there were some other people that you had to be careful that you, you wouldn't leave the office until you had the final read on a certain person. But, um, you know, with Povich, you know, you know, he was he was really good. And, and uh, you know, Kornheiser and Kindred and uh, they were really brilliant, you know, writers. And we had a guy named John Shulian for a while. You know, they were t terrific writers. And the reason that they, you know, is that they were on staff is because someone, whether it was me or someone else, saw a great writing ability. And uh, not everyone has that. I mean, Odell Beckham may be, in, you know, a pain in the butt, but he, he will never let you down in a game. And, uh, you know, Tony Kornheiser was a great columnist. He wasn't a good columnist. He was a great columnist. But, you know, Red Smith once saying it takes a lot of work to be Tony's friend. And that it took a lot of work to be Tony's editor. And that's but he made you work and, you, you know, it was worth it. What would some of that work look like? Oh, the work or Tony as a person? Yeah. Tony as a person, I would recommend you go meet him and spend an hour <laughs> with him. And you wouldn't have to ask that question. No, I meant, I meant as an editor. As an editor. That's what I was curious about. You, once you, he, you and he agreed on a subject, you didn't have to worry about it. Mm. I mean, there were things that he did. I wrote about this recently, about this piece he did for Sports Illustrated on Rick Barry. You couldn't duplicate it. Then there was, a, um, I don't know if you were relevant at this time, but he did the bandwagon columns uh, of the Redskins championship season. I had in the poster in my room. 1991. And, I mean, if you go and... You know, say to somebody in Minneapolis, uh, here's what Tony writes every Tuesday. They, they would say, it's nothing. But for Washington, it meant so much. And I don't know. And looking back on it, I don't know why or how, but it did. And that's what makes a good newspaper. I mean, he just caught on perfectly. Then there was another column. I think of this every time I see Pat Riley. Kornheiser wrote a column, and he spent the first six paragraphs on Riley's hair, uh, how it slicked back. And it just, who can write six paragraphs on Pat Riley's hair? And he did, and he it's as good as you want. Then he used to write a Sunday-style column, and uh, that was as good as you would ever see anyway. What mistakes did you make as an editor? Um, you know, one time um, 
uh, Abe Poland and Arnie Heft were in a legal battle <laughs> and wasn't the only one. And uh, the story that we uh, that we published uh, was a little one sided. And then the next day we had to go back and, you know, do do a better job on it. But there were there were stories we got beat on. And uh, um, there was, you know, you know, you know, Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan uh, were national figures who, you know, came across our landscape. And I think we could have done better. Uh, the Redskins, I think we did well, um, you know, and uh, George Allen was certainly a challenge. Uh, but, they, you know, we got beat on some stories. And uh, but I think we held our own. And you mentioned Kornheiser, and obviously Kornheiser and Wilbon have gone on to cross over to other uh, mediums. And growing up in this area, for me, a big part of Kornheiser was always radio. Um, and like, like, like you listen to Kornheiser on the radio, it's 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 a wild and 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 fun experience. But both Kornheiser and Wilbon uh, transitioned over into other media's. Can you just talk about? why you think they were successful at, at doing that? Well, first of all, their offices were right across the a very narrow hall from each other. And they used to go out and bark at each other, and they would just... They did that show that's so popular now. They did that for 10 years before it got on television. And it, you know, can you say being at work every day, they made it fun? And the answer was yes. And... Um, I like to tell the story that whichever department was right next to the Kornheiser Wilbon office, the department head, whether it was Book World or Outlook, came to me and asked me, could you get them to lower the volume? And the answer was, and I would tell them, no, they won't stop and I can't make them. And so those other departments would actually move. They would leave. Finally, the investigative team came in, and they enjoyed Kornheiser and Wilbon, as does the rest of America now. But that that thing went on, you know, in the office for years. And and on the other side of it, I'm I'm curious about Christine Brennan, Sally Jenkins. Uh, we before we turn on the mic, talked about uh, Chelsea Janes, who reports on on the Nationals. Um, you look at the landscape now. Um, I'm the woman that does baseball for ESPN, who's she's fantastic. Her name's escaping me. But you got Doris Burke in basketball, um, and you're starting to see women um, really get into sports slowly, but it's starting to happen. But talk about Sally Jenkins, Christine Brennan, and and what it was like having female voices in the paper. Well, you also you Johnette Howard, uh, the first w- woman sports columnist we had. Uh, was in the early 70s, a woman named Joan Ryan, whose husband was Frank Ryan, a quarterback uh, for the Cleveland Browns in the 50s when they won their last championship in in the 60s. In 1964, uh, he was the uh, quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, and his wife was a journalist. And when they moved to Washington, she went to work for the Washington Star, and uh, we hired her. Uh, in, I think, 1975 or 1976, and she did a column. And then a woman named Nancy Scannell covered the hard news. Uh, Kathy Blumenstock covered the Washington Capitol. Sally Jenkins covered uh, the University of Maryland. Betty Cooner-Burdy uh, covered the University of Maryland athletics. Uh, Johnette Howard was terrific. Uh, Christine Brennan was great. She covered the re- first woman to cover the Redskins. So there were a number of women who played significant roles. Uh, Jeannie McManus was an assistant sports editor. Tracy Hamilton was an assistant sports editor. So women were well representative in in the the sports department at the Washington Post for years, actually starting in the mid-1920s when a woman named Dorothy Green uh, had a column called The Sportswoman. So I bet you didn't know that. Definitely not. And none of my students know that, and when I tell them, they immediately forget. uh, But Dorothy Green was a sports columnist in the mid uh, 1920s at the Washington Post. And you've mentioned your students and, and teaching. Uh, what's it been like for you? I think you've been at this for like 15 years or so. What's it been like for you to be a teacher, formerly a teacher? Because it sounded like editing was also, there's an element of teaching. What's it been like for you being a teacher at University Well, I of love the students. I think the students are terrific. 
And uh, the first thing you learn is that not every student, uh, whether they're a junior or a senior, when they come to me or a graduate student, you know, has Tom Boswell's writing ability at this point. But they could someday if they work hard enough and they read enough of Tom Boswell uh, and read Tony Kornheiser back in the day and read David Shinen today and, you know, read John Ed Bradley's book and read some of the great books and read Bill Knack. Uh, you know, in great sports stories, which is available, you know, for 20 bucks, you could read the greatest sports journalists of the, you know, the 20th century and read. We have a, uh, a project, uh, at, you know, at our, uh, in our, you know, on our website called, uh, Still No Cheering in the Press Box, in which we interviewed every journalist, every important sports writer of this, uh, century, uh, which, you know, the, the original, uh, No Cheering in this Press Box, the anthology by Jerome Holtzman, uh, did the best sports writers in the country. But the late Mr. Holtzman stopped in 1970. So we have, from 1970 to the present day, the luxury of interviewing the great sports journalists of the day. You can read that at povidcenter.org. Uh, uh, we have 60 of them right now on site. And we do a, you know, a different one. We do two a month or sometimes one a month and, uh, you know, we're, we're locked and loaded until 2020. And is your mindset different as a teacher than it was as an editor? Similar? What are the similarities and differences? Yeah, you can't have the same expectations. You're not getting someone with five or six years experience. You're not getting someone who grew up reading Bill Knack or Red Smith. You're getting someone who might look at his or her phone and read uh, sports journalism. You can't always find that, you know, on a phone. You've got to take it, you take it upon yourself to read good things. And some students do, and some students, you know, you know, take a pass. But uh, you know, you can't have the same expectations. You can have the same hopes that these students will rise to the level of the people you edited when you were at the Washington Post. So if I could get clarity around that, the challenge today is that these kids are not um, reading with the same, they don't have five newspapers on their kitchen table when they wake up in the morning and and devouring it. And uh, they're just reading differently. And also what they're reading is not the same, potentially not the same writers that you grew up reading as well. So the challenge is that they're consuming different information. And what I've heard all along our conversation today is that you felt like you got better as a editor, better as a writer by reading. Um, so the challenge exists. If, if how do you help someone if they're not reading the quality work that, that you might've had okay. at your fingertips? More of those people are available today online. And the only thing I can do as a teacher is trying to explain the benefits of reading good journalists, whether they be writing for a website, a newspaper, a book. And, uh, you know, Armin Katayan just finished a book on Tiger Woods, you know, or you've, you know, you might ask a, a, a class, a classroom who, who your favorite sports writers are today. And some of them will give you an answer, but most will say, you know, I read so many. And then the obvious challenge in the shift of hats is at the Washington Post, you're already dealing with pros. And here you're still dealing with college kids. So even if it was 40 years ago, it would still be a different challenge because of when you're getting the people at the stage in their life. Uh, 40 years ago, it would be that the people who were serious about the business grew up reading Red Smith and Shirley Povich. Today, if I ask one single student, how many have read a Mitch Albom column? Even though he appears at the Detroit Free Press and you could read him, the answer would be no one. And, you know, you will assign a Bill Knack uh, piece that appears in great sports writing of the 20th century and they'll read it. But if you don't assign it, they probably won't read it. And very often, you know, and I hate to say this, some students, you know, even when you make the assignment and say you will 
devour every word of a Frank DeFord piece on Bobby Knight or, uh, you know, Billy Kahn, I'm begging you to read it. You don't always get a positive result. When you have 20 kids, let's just say you have a class of 20 kids, how many of those kids want to write? Um, how many of them want to maybe be on TV, radio, podcast? They all want to be Mike Wilbon. That's the dream. They want to be Mike Wilbon. I don't know how many people want to be Kornheiser, but they want to be Mike Wilbon. Right. And, uh, but they don't realize what it took for Wilbon to become Wilbon or Kornheiser to become Kornheiser. Um, Boswell pretty much has stayed a writer. He didn't, you know, move into television. And, uh, you know, Povich uh, was a writer. I mean, I th- he had a brief foray on TV in the early 1950s, but it was very brief. And there was a sports writer who worked at all the Washington papers named Maury Siegel. And uh, he got into TV. He was doing the local sports in the early 50s here. And uh, one night on Christmas Eve, he got on TV when he wasn't supposed to be on TV because he had a little too much Christmas cheer and he became a full-time sports writer for the rest of his career. You got it. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's what you want and it's what makes you happy. It's interesting because growing up in this area and reading the post and the, the stories that I always heard from my dad who at his core is a journalist, uh, was you had Boswell, Kornheiser and Wilbon as sort of like, you know, the columns. Um, and what I'd always heard from my dad is Boswell writing was superb from his perspective. Um, and it was always like Boswell's a baseball guy, but we don't have a baseball team. Um, what do you think allowed or why do you think Kornheiser and Wilbon transitioned away from writing and into these other mediums and, and Boswell decided or, or ended up staying and, and writing? Yeah. Well, Boswell, um, he became the baseball writer in 1975, and he covered the Red Sox Cincinnati World Series. That was his first World Series. And he just had a feel for that. And uh, even though we didn't have a team, he would occasionally go up to Baltimore, then later went to Baltimore a lot. But, you know, we had the wherewithal in those years to understand that there was still a great audience for baseball and baseball coverage in the post, even though we didn't have a team. And baseball at that time was great in that you could send Boswell to Los Angeles and he would do a story on the Dodgers. And he could then go up to San Francisco and and do a story on the Giants. And I'm still ridiculed ridiculed by many of my former uh, ex-staffers, uh, including David Remnick, now the editor of The New Yorker, who said that I never, I was logistically challenged, that if somebody was in Los Angeles, well, why not go up to uh, San Francisco? It's, you know, on the way home. And, uh, but Boswell could do that, and he could go to Wrigley Field and write about uh, the charm of Wrigley Field and make people even like the George Wills of the world feel, boy, this was special. And, you know, and, you know, that's what, that's what made Boswell what he is today, that he saw baseball as something eminently writable, special, and that he could do it. And he kept getting better and better and better. And in 1984, uh, when David Kindred, who was a great columnist, left us for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we promoted uh, Boswell and Kornheiser to columnists uh, to replace uh, Kindred. Uh, Wilbon became a columnist a year later. Uh, then we also had, you know, not only Christine Brennan and Sally Jenkins, but John Feinstein was a real force and still is a real force in sports journalism. You have a incredible memory, uh, 1975, 1984. Yeah, but April 19th is my wife's birthday, see? And I'm probably going to mess that up. And <laughs> I'll uh, send you an email. So, right. So April 19th, April 19th, April 19th. So the memory's not that great, although I can uh, – uh, Mark Plotkin, a uh, political raconteur in Washington, knows the lineups of every Chicago uh, White Sox team from the 19, uh, late 1940s till 1970. Where does your memory come from? Why do you think your 
you're so clear and, and vivid with it. Well, it doesn't come from geometry or algebra. And uh, you just remember things by reading and you remember things by being there and you remember little things. I mean, it's just uh, I was trying to explain um, uh, to a class uh, recently about what is it about Red Barber uh, that made him so distinct as the you know the voice of the Dodgers. And in 1947, when Jackie Robinson broke in, Barbara, who's a graduate of the University of Florida, grew up in Alabama, uh, you know, was a Southerner in, at heart and had a difficult time trying to come to grips with the fact that he would have to broadcast Jackie Robinson's baseball games in 1947. And Branch Rickey asked him one question, can you do this? And he said, I will. And he did, even though he had, you know, trouble, you know, coming to grips with it. And then he, you know, and I was trying to explain how he became so famous with these sayings like, uh, he's in the catbird seat. And, uh, you know, you remember things like that. And uh, Mel Allen in the day, he had a thing too. He's not certainly in the class of uh, Red Barber or Vin Scully, but Mel Allen would say, how about that? And you just remember things. You remember things, and uh, and, and it also helps when you read. What makes a great story? Uh, great storyteller. That's what makes a great story. A great storyteller is able to find, you know, what a great story. David Shinen, uh this month uh, wrote a piece on Dusty Baker and his recollections of, you know, being canned and being the manager of the Washington Nationals. And Shinen's a great storyteller. And he was able to get some of these stories without the rancor of bitterness into the paper. And you got a real feel for how Dusty Baker felt about being fired, even though he'd won two consecutive uh, division titles uh, with the Washington Nationals. So can you take that a step further? What makes a great storyteller? Um, curiosity. That's easy. Curiosity. I mean, you can't be a, a journalist without being curious. You can't be, and, and that's not being curious about yourself. It's being curious about the people you're talking to. And that, that's what makes a great storyteller. One out of 10, how curious are you? 10 being very curious. I used to be a lot more curious probably than I am today. Uh, but I'm a good eight still. Kornheiser? Kornheiser. He's, um, Kornheiser's an eight. Wilbon? Uh, Wilbon's an eight. I mean, they're right up there. Are they there. all eights or should I keep going? Uh, Povich? Uh, Povich was an eight. And, uh, you know, but Boswell had a great sense of seeing, of seeing a, a, an eight for a story and, and making it a 10. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Povich, uh, with his words, could, could increase it to a 10 as well. You know, Kornheiser, with his humor, could make it an 11. Hmm. And Wilbon, with his insane, ins, insights, could make it a 10. And uh, But, you know, I had a guy named Gary Pomerantz who, who was great. And now he's a journalism professor at Stanford. And uh, he, was, he was really good, too. And then it was Richard Justice, who I had for years and years as a baseball writer. Then he covered the uh, Bullets. Then he covered, uh, um, I, th I think he covered baseball. He covered the Orioles for us. And uh, who became, uh, who is a great baseball writer. Now he works for MLB.com. And he was curious. But he also had a great sense of... Um, getting uh, of getting the confidence of the people he covered even though he was certainly the furthest thing from what we call a houseman than you could find uh what does a houseman mean a houseman he just writes he or she writes everything that appeals to the team not rocking the boat not confrontational exactly okay and uh, but justice was anything but from that but still had the confidence of the people he covered in fact joe gibbs one time grabbed me aside and said that's the best sports writer i ever dealt with wow humor insight confidence so each person might have had something that took the eight so curiosity is like a baseline you can't be in this journalism space or be good at it if you don't have a baseline of curiosity and then each person's personality or special sauce or whatever made them unique would take them from an eight 
to wherever. Uh, Justice and Sally Jenkins are 10 the scale for curiosity. They are. Yes. Sal- Sally Jenkins wants to know about everything all the time, which is why she's a great columnist beside being a great writer. Mm-hmm. Her father was a great writer who was, him and Kornheiser are the funniest people I ever read, along with Jim Murray. And most people start off as reporter, right? Like, uh, it's very uncommon that someone would just jump to columnists, right? Most of these people had to do some sort of I'm not going to mention names, but there are people, including those in this town, who become columnists before they deserve to be a columnist, who become a voice before they deserve to be heard. And uh, that's, you know, that's a problem nowadays. But it, so it sounds like you think the process should be, hey, you got to learn how to report, learn how to get facts, learn how to uncover things and, and report. And, and learn then, how to write clearly. And then you can go on to inject your voice into that. Correct. Very interesting. One last question for you. So one of the things that I digest now, you mentioned The Athletic earlier, but one of the things I love to read is, is the Players' Tribune. And so that is a completely different medium in a lot of ways because it's owned and run by players. They obviously, they have a great team of ghostwriters who know prolific ghostwriters. I've actually spent time with some of their people. Um, But what are your thoughts on the players tribune? And I see (laughs) like, you guys can't see this, but George's whole being shifted. Uh, He's shifted in his seat. He smiled. So I'm so curious to get your thoughts on the Players' Tribune. Uh, The the Players' Tribune is run by a Merrill grad named Jamie Messler. And for that, I really respect. And they're doing well. And the editor in charge is Gary Honig, who's another good editor, a very, very good editor, who was my competitor at the Washington Star back in the day, a long time ago. A very good editor. But I'll refer back to... uh, uh, Shirley Povich in the 1920s. In 1920, you're not going to believe this, but in 1924, uh, the Senators were in the World Series. Was it 24 or 25? Uh, you know, even you know, even though I can't remember my wife's anniversary, usually I remember those days. But I think it was 1924. The Senators were in the World Series, and Babe Ruth was doing what they do at the Players' Tribune. He was you know, babbling with a, you know, a, a sports writer from the uh, Times-Herald in Washington or one of the other Washington papers beside the Washington Post. And the Post was covering with its staff the World Series with the senators were in it and they won it. I guess it was tw- 25. Okay, so if I'm wrong by a year, I'm wrong. But uh, the f- slogan at the Post during the World Series with Babe Ruth writing for the other paper was, don't read a coat, read a ghost, read the post. Repeat that for me. Don't read a ghost, read the post. Okay. So so the idea that ghostwriting is is that what is that what that's referring to or something? It's ghostwriting. Yeah. It's ghostwriting. Right. Nowadays it's probably written better, uh, you know, with some really good editing at the Players Tribune. But it's, you know, why don't we have a uh you know, a presidential tribune. Well, we do with twi- Twitter. But, uh, you know, would you have a, you know, a secretary, would you have uh, Mike Pence, you know, write a column, uh, you know, in the Washington Post? I don't Probably think so. I could use some ghost- <laughs> presidential ghost- I'm not writing. going there. But, uh, you know, you know, read the journalist. So, so you, do you feel there's a place for the Players' Tribune or do you, would you prefer it to be, um, yeah, I'll just leave that open. Uh, you have choices to make. And if it's a, you know, if I have a choice on a particular day to read The Athletic or The Players' Tribune, even though The Players' Tribune is run by a Merrill grad, uh, edited by, a, you know, an old friend of mine, I'll, I'll read The Athletic. Because in your mind, they are coming from it from a, a fair and honest or, or a different perspective. It's a journalistic perspective. Uh, the Players' Tribune is a player's perspective, sure. however you know respectful you want to be of it. For sure. Well, I just want to uh, thank you for giving your perspective. Uh, and you know, editing is something I don't think we've had an editor on the show. We've had a lot of writers and people that were former writers and <laughs> might be in TV or in other aspects. So we've we've had definitely people in journalism, but your perspective as a editor is, is really fascinating. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. What I'd love to do is give you a platform to promote 
whatever you want to promote. Obviously, we're sitting in this beautiful building uh, at University of Maryland, uh, so certainly tell us about that. But anything else that you well, want to Well, the Povich Center, I, want to, I do want to say on uh, uh, April 14th, we have a workshop in we, we, which we have high school and college journalists come in for the day on April uh, 14th, and we have professionals, so some of former uh, writers for the Washington Post, Baltimore Sun, USA Today, work with students, uh, plus Andy Poland, uh, old radio hand and TV. We have Heather Dinich from ESPN coming in to work with students, and that's on April 14th. It's free uh, all day, uh, breakfast and lunch included. On April 20th, we're co-hosting a women's sports conference with ESPNW. Uh, that's also free. And then in the summer, we have a, a sports journalism summer camp. April uh, it starts April seventh for a week, and uh, you know it's a hundred bucks, and uh, it's not a sleepaway, but it's a good session. And then uh, we do lots of different things with the Povich Center. PovichCenter.org uh, is our website. Perfect. Well, thank you, George, for sharing your story. Thank you, Brian, and uh, and your perspective. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And you can't be a, a journalist without being curious. You can't be, and, and that's not being curious about yourself. It's being curious about the people you're talking to. And that, that's what makes a great storyteller. <laughs>